Glad you're here this morning. I hope you guys are planning to be part of our picnic next week, Sunday, as long as the weather permits. We will meet at Francis Slocum State Park for our service and our picnics. So don't meet here. If you meet here, the doors will be locked. So meet us at Francis Slocum. If anything changes, we will definitely let you know. We're going to continue our series through the book of Ephesians today as we're calling the theme. I'm not going to quiz you yet because it's only, it's only been three weeks. But eventually I'll quiz you on what the theme is. But the theme is lifestyles of the rich and godly. Hopefully you can remember that theme. It's going to sort of show up in every lesson we look at through the book of Ephesians. And we're, Lord willing, going to finish chapter 1 today. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 1. And we're going to look at verses 15 to 23. The title of our lesson today is going to be called Enlightened Hearts. And we're going to find that right in the text. Enlightened Hearts. We'll get to the text here in a minute. Did you ever not appreciate someone until you got to know them? Do you ever have a friend that at first you didn't really appreciate them or some, someone you work with or someone in your family? Well, I have a little story of someone like that in my own life. You guys might not even know this connection, but I have this really close friend in my life, and he's, he has a connection with every single one of you who have been at Wyoming Valley Church for years. Your previous pastor, Dr. Lee Clewer, I am really good friends with his son, Jeff Clewer. So maybe you're wondering, how did I arrive here at Wyoming Valley Church? Well, part of this is the story I'm about to tell you. Jeff Cleaver and I are really good friends, Lee's son. And Jeff, when I first met him, it was not a connection between me and Jeff. Jeff and I did not connect. I, I hosted this Bible study uh, in my early 20s with a core group of guy friends. And we had been doing it for several weeks. And one of my friends, John, said one week, do you mind if I invite my friend Jeff to come? And I said, not, a, not at all. You know, bring him. This is, this is open to anybody. And so he brought Jeff one week, and Jeff was a nice enough guy. We got along, you know, uh, in conversation and things like that. But Jeff and I didn't click. We were just different guys, you know. He's short. He's uh, artsy. He dressed like a musician. He wasn't even into normal bands. He liked all these underground bands. Uh, Jeff has a good sense of humor, but his sense of humor is even different than mine. He's the zany, crazy kind of guy, and I'm more of the one-liner kind of guy. So, so Jeff and I, it wasn't a connection at first. It was like, oh, okay, yeah, that's fine that he comes, but um, Jeff and I didn't hit it off. It was always, he was always John's plus one, and so Jeff and I really didn't but a friendship at the beginning. In fact, I found him a little odd. But as Jeff continued in the Bible study with me and, and several other guys for weeks, I really got to know Jeff's heart. I got to know Jeff. I got to know his personality. I really started to enjoy being around Jeff, and we, we were able to mesh our senses of humors together, and Jeff also had a real love for the Lord that I fought, found there, and so Jeff and I became actually really close friends. And Jeff today is probably one of my best friends in the entire world, and the reason I say that is because, not necessarily because we line up in everything. We have some things in common and some things not in common, but Jeff is a true friend. Jeff is one of those friends who will check up on me. He'll tell me he's praying for me. He'll, if we're gone for several months and we get back together, you guys know what that's like, right? You pick up right where you left off. Jeff's that kind of friend. And so you guys might not know this detail, but Jeff might be, besides the sovereignty of God, of course, the reason I'm your pastor. Because I don't know Dr. Lee Cleaver that well. But Dr. Lee Cleaver was the one who sort of connected me to this church, not my dad even. Uh, and the reason I have a connection with the Cleaver family is because of my strong relationship to Jeff. So whether you like me as your pastor or not, if you ever see Jeff, <laughs> tell him. Um, but Jeff and I is, are really connected, really close even today. We've had a long-term friendship. He's one of my best friends in the world. But one of those guys I had to get to know first, and he had to get to know me first before we really budded a friendship. Well, we're going to find today something that Paul prays for a church. 
that they would know it. Three things. He's going to pray that they would know three things better than they already did at that point. So let's find the text. Follow along as I read Ephesians 1, 15 to 23. This is what the Apostle Paul says. He says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Really powerful text today. We hope to do it justice. We're calling our lesson today, Enlightened Hearts. I had a driving story as it began today, but you guys ever been in one of those really bad rainstorms while driving? Really bad rainstorms where you're struggling to see through the windshield. Right? Even if you have windshield wipers, they almost seem to be not good enough or not fast enough because there's so much rain. Or maybe you've gotten into one of those cars where the windshield wipers just really aren't that great. I, I've been in those cars. They kind of squeak really loud and they don't really get all the moisture off. And maybe you've come to an image like this in your life where you're looking through a windshield, something that you need to see clearly through, but you're having difficulty because of the weather. Well, the Ephesians, as we've learned for the last couple weeks, were a a good church. They were on track. They were following Jesus Christ. Paul has a lot of good things to say about this church. And yet he's going to pray for the Ephesians. He has a really powerful prayer request. And he's going to tell them what his prayer request is. And his prayer request is that they would see clearly. In fact, not just with their eyes. He says, I want your hearts, the eyes of your hearts, to be enlightened. I want you to see clearly with your soul. And so our goals today are going to line up with what exactly Paul is praying for. We have these two goals that we're going to set before us today. Number one is for us to see clearly the hope, the riches, and the power we can have in Christ Jesus. We need to see that very, very clearly. That's goal number one. Goal number two to go along with it is that we would see more clearly that Jesus is worthy of our confidence in him, our joy in him, and a life of victory over sin and evil. So two things we want to see more clearly today, that Jesus is valuable and precious and helpful to our soul in all things. And we hope to see that by looking at our hope, our riches, and our power that we can have in Jesus Christ. And we're going to get right into the text here. Paul, the first thing he does, the first thing he tells us in this passage is that he's thankful. He's thankful to God for the faith and love of the Ephesians. And he wants them to know that. I'm thankful for you, Ephesians. You Ephesians have encouraged my heart. I'm thankful for the report I got. I, I, as I've read through the scriptures, Paul had several letters to several different churches, and they weren't all the same. It was kind of like snowflakes. You didn't find two the same. And some of the churches, he got reports from them, they weren't that great. But when he got the report about the Ephesians, it was all encouraging. The Ephesians were on track. They had, as it says right here, he says, I thank you because you had faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and love for all the saints, which is just a word for Christians. 
And so Paul is thankful, and he's telling them that he's thankful to God for who they are and the report that he's heard. And I wonder, even as I read that, do we do that? Do we thank the Lord for people in our life who are godly, godly examples, people who are on track, people who have proven faithfulness to Jesus? Because those people don't come around a lot. Now, there's a lot of Christians in this world. You can find Christians any block. But people who have evidenced a long tenure, long relationship, long faithfulness with the Lord Jesus Christ are people that we should thank God for. And Paul, I'm guessing, didn't get a lot of those reports. And so when he got this report about the Ephesians, it caused him to fall on his face and thank God and say, God, thank you. Thank you for the report of the Ephesians. If you remember, Paul's entire calling as an apostle was to help churches walk in accordance to Christ, wasn't it? In accordance to Christ and his commandments. That was Paul's mission from sunup to sundown is help people know Jesus more. So when he found a church that was on track, that really encouraged Paul. And he wanted them to know that. Because some churches got on board more than others. There were some churches who were doing okay. They had some issues. But the Ephesians, they bought in. They got on board. And Paul was really encouraged by that. So he says, I thank the God of our Lord Jesus Christ for your faith and your love towards all the saints. And it's interesting, even as we've learned, he gives the glory to who for that? He gives the glory to God for that. Ephesians had a role in that. They, they should be applauded in a sense. But really the main glory, the primary glory goes to God. And so he thanked God for the Ephesians and told the Ephesians that. So they would be encouraged too. And so they really, truly believed who Jesus was. They did. They believed who he was, what he said about himself, what he came to do, and they followed him. They recognized how much their God had loved them through Jesus. They had to. For them to be right on track, they had to get it. They had to understand what God has done through Jesus and that Jesus was deserving of everything they had. So they were walking in faith, and they were walking in love. And shouldn't that be said of every Christian? that they're walking in faith, they're walking in love towards all the saints, and the Ephesians were. So the first thing Paul does is says, I'm thankful to you, for you, Ephesians, for what I'm hearing about you. And those who have proven their faith and love towards Jesus are worthy for us to remember them in our prayers. They just are. Whoever those people are in your life, and I hope you have several here, who evidence that kind of faith and love, those people should be mentioned in your prayers. Thanked for, and then second of all, prayed for, that they would continue that they would continue to be a good example, a good testimony of Jesus Christ upon this world. And I'm guessing, again, Paul didn't get a lot of those reports. So the Ephesians were special. They may have been unique. They may have been one of a kind. If you remember, Paul had to write to the Corinthians. The Corinthians were kind of different, dealing with a lot of issues. There was idolatry and sexual morality and division in the church, and Paul had to really address these awkward issues the Galatians, they were kind of abandoning the gospel or tempted to and going back to a, you know, an Old Testament law system. And Paul's like, no, no, stay on track. But when he heard the Ephesians, uh, the, the report of the Ephesians, he's really encouraged. And they were unique. They were special in the eyes of Paul. They were one of a kind church. And we don't get a lot of those people in our life. So if we have those people in our life, if we have that kind of church, God should hear about it from us. And hopefully we do. Hopefully we can think of people right now that we're thankful to God for their testimony, their evidence of faith and love. And then we should encourage those people. Go forward. Because you could say, well, okay, based on Ephesians, there should be one chapter. Here's what you are. Here's what God's done. Keep it going, period. But Paul, for the next five chapters, is going to basically say, keep going. 
Or here's more. Or here's something new. Or let's enlighten your hearts even more to see more of God. And basically, that's what he's going to do here for the rest of the chapter. So we're going to now look at Paul's request. We're going to look at the request, the prayer request, that he tells the church, this is how I'm praying for you. And this is a really profound, important thing that we're going to learn here today. That Paul says, I want the eyes of your hearts to be more opened to these three things. So let's look at Paul's request. Since the Ephesians are right on track, spiritually, through faith and love, towards Jesus and the Christians, Paul had a very special request for them. He wanted to give these people a very special present. You ever want to give someone a really special present? You have a spouse or a girlfriend or a boyfriend or a kid or a mother or dad or something like that, and you want to give them something really special. Sometimes I will do that for my wife. I should do it more, of course. I want to get her something really special so she knows just how much I love her. You know, I get her a really special flower bouquet or, you know, I, I, I've, I volunteer to bathe or watch one of the kids <laughs> so she can have five minutes to drink her coffee. That's really special, by the way, Virginia. <laughs> Anyways, he wanted to give the Ephesians a really special present, and so he's going to pray. He's going to pray something really profound for the Ephesians. And so he asked God this request, to open their eyes to see Jesus more clearly. Not Again, they're not to physical eyes. He's asking them to open the eyes of their hearts, to see Jesus better, to know more profoundly what they have in Jesus Christ, more knowledge, more revelation from God. Is that a blessing? If we get more knowledge about God, even though we know God to some degree, isn't that a blessing? If we receive more revelation about God, understand deeper things about God, isn't that a blessing? That's how Paul is praying. He wanted them to have more, more knowledge, more revelation, more understanding. Why? Because every time we learn something about God, it has the enormous potential to bless our souls for all of eternity. Every time we learn something about God, something deeper, something more profound, something new that we didn't know before, it has the enormous potential to bless us. And Paul wants to bless his Ephesian church. He wants them to know God intimately, not just facts. A lot of us can pass a test. If we were asked questions about God or the Bible, you know, who is Jesus? What did he do on the earth? It's not what he's asking for. He wants them to know Jesus intimately, God intimately, experientially. But not just that. He wants them to know God's will. To know God's will and to be able to accomplish that will in their lives. That's a really special thing. So he's going to pray that this happens. That their eyes would become more open. See it better. See it clearer. It's because once they see it, they will follow it. Really, guys? That's the gospel. Once you see Jesus, once your eyes are open to the gospel, you follow it. You do. And everybody who doesn't follow it, hasn't seen it. Because once you see Jesus and once you understand the gospel, it's clear in your mind, this is the way I need to go. But these people had already done that. So what could he pray for? What do you give the person that has everything? My dad's that kind of person, by the way. I can never get him anything because he has everything. Really? Everything he wants. So I end up getting him a gift card or telling him, remember those coupon books? Oh, he's got, yeah. So I see what he did there. He's got everything in my mom. But what do you get the church that has everything? And I just threw my pen. Well, Paul's going to pray that they have more. They have more knowledge, more wisdom, more understanding. And because it has the opportunity to make them richer, more blessed for all of eternity. So God, open their hearts. Open their eyes to see Jesus more clearly. And he's going to pray for these three things. Okay, These three things are what he's going to ask God for. In specifics, 
God opened their eyes to these three things. Number one, to know the hope to which God has called them. I want them to know the hope to which they have received in Jesus Christ. Number two, I want them to know the riches of his glorious inheritance. If they know the hope and they know the riches. Number three, to know the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and raised him up and seated him at the highest position imaginable. Now notice he's not praying that they gain it. Because these people had already evidenced that they're walking in truth. They're walking in the gospel. They're following Jesus Christ. He's praying that they know it. They know the hope. They know the riches. They know the power that they have access to. And before I get into these three things, I want us to pause. And as we, did at the, as we started Ephesians, we had to ask this question. Are we like the Ephesians? Because Paul is praying for this unique prayer request for a unique church because they got it. They, they got on board. They understood it. They were walking in truth. And the question I have about Wyoming Valley Church is are we like the Ephesians? Do we get it? Have we bought in? Have we got on board? Do we really see clearly that it's all through Jesus? Or is this just habit? Is it just Sunday routine? Is it just a place we just come to and meet friends and eat donuts and just part of our routine, or do we get it? The Ephesians got it. They got it. And Paul knew that they got it. And so he's going to pray for something really special for them. And as a pastor, I have to sort of gauge my congregation, not in a judgmental way, but I have to look around and say, are we buying in? And I would say our church is trending in a good direction, but I don't think we're quite like the Ephesians. I don't think we've really bought in and got on board like the Ephesians had. They were unique. They were special. But I hope we're going that direction. I see good things. And so I hope by learning these things today, we can buy in. We can get on board more than we have up to this point and say, I'm in. I'm in. Lord, you have me. Whatever it takes. So let's go to these three things. Let's learn about what he says about these three things. And again, my prayer for Wyoming Valley Church is that we get on board. We stop sitting on the sidelines if we are, and we invest. We buy into this church. We buy into what God is doing here and say, God, you have me. You have me. And everything else is going to be secondary. Everything else is going to yield to what God has for me through his church. That's a big one, isn't it? But that's important. That's exactly what God has for every one of us. So let's look at the first thing. Request number one is that they see and know the hope they have in Jesus Christ. Hope. Is hope important? Is hope important for your soul? Do you need hope in this life? Does everyone need hope in this life? We do, right? We have to have hope. This is a scary place. Even as I drove my car yesterday, I realized it's kind of a scary place, you know? It only takes a fraction of a second to be in some kind of scary situation. But to start having hope, to have hope, you have to know Jesus. And that has to be clear. This hope cannot be manufactured. This hope cannot be several different paths for whoever your background and perspective says you need. No. It has to be through Jesus Christ. And if we are... Christians, if we say we follow Jesus Christ, there are a few fundamental truths we have to believe. I hope we know that. But there are a few fundamental truths we have to believe in order to have this hope in Jesus Christ. And I want to mention these things. Because if we don't have these things, we don't have hope. We don't have hope if we don't believe these things. Let's look at, look at number one. Number one thing we have to believe that is a fundamental truth of Christianity is we must 
believe or in need of saving. And Paul's going to bring that up in chapter 2 that, Lord willing, we will get to next week. He's going to tell the Ephesians, you have to understand that you were in need of saving because you're not a good person by nature. You're a sinner by nature. In fact, what he's going to say in chapter 2 is you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Paul has to, as we all have to understand, we're dead. We're in need of saving. We're not good people. We are not people that just need to clean ourselves up a little bit, make ourselves a little bit more presentable, go to God, and God's like, oh, finally, you did, you did enough. No. Someone must save us. Because you could say we're drowning. But Paul doesn't even use the word drowning. He uses the word dead. Dead. So if a drowning person needs to be saved, how much more someone who is dead spiritually? Does a person like that need to be saved? Absolutely. And that's a tentpole. That is a pillar. That is a foundation of Christianity. Unless you understand that you are a sinner by nature and that you haven't met up to God's standard and that you're in need of saving, you can't go on to step two. You cannot see Jesus, clearly. So that hopefully we've all come to that realization in our life that we are in need of saving. We can't find a right standing with God unless someone saves us. Here's number two. To have this hope, we must believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah, that he is the only Lamb of God. Jesus was a man on earth. He's an historical figure. Even people who don't believe Jesus is the Christ believe that Jesus lived upon the earth. But if that's all you believe about Jesus Christ, you don't have hope, do you? You must believe that he, not only was Jesus a man, but he's God. He's the Son of God that came from heaven, put on flesh, and gave up his life for you and for me. He, and he is the Savior. That's what we have to understand, that we're in need of saving. And number two, Jesus is the only Messiah, the only Christ, the only Savior of the world. There is no other. There is no plan B. If you miss out on Jesus, you don't have a right standing with God, and you cannot. So if Jesus is just a man, it's ridiculous to think that any man can atone for our sins. Any moral man, any moral woman cannot atone for our sins. Only the God-man, only the Son of God can, only Jesus. And if you go back to the Old Testament, it's always been Jesus. It's always been Jesus. It'll always be Jesus. And we have to understand that it's always been Jesus Christ. He is the only begotten Son of God who came to earth. He put on flesh and he gave up his life as a ransom for our sins. And we need a Savior, don't we? We need a Savior and we need a sufficient Savior. And that Savior is Jesus. He is sufficient. And that's the greatest thing about him being the Son of God. I can trust him. I can trust that payment on the cross because he's not just a man. He's God's only begotten Son that was sent to be my sacrifice and your sacrifice. That's number two. You have to understand that he is the only Messiah, the only way to God. Number three, we have to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead and is now highly exalted in heaven. Because that's a really important detail. We bring that up at Easter. Thank you that Jesus is risen. But that's a really important detail. If Jesus dies and stays dead and your hope is in a dead guy, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. If your hope is in someone who's in a grave, who's rotting in a grave, you're in trouble. But did Jesus die? Yes, he did die. But did he stay dead? No, he did not. Three days later, he conquered death. 
He had victory over death. He was resurrected from the dead. And your, your faith and your hope are in that Son of God who can conquer death, who death bows to Jesus Christ. Amen. Death cannot hold. Jesus and death cannot hold anyone that belongs to Jesus. It's not powerful enough. It's not an authority. Jesus is. And he proved it by raising from the dead. And not just that, but God ascended him back to heaven, sat him down on his throne in heaven, and gave him all authority and rule over everything. And our hope is pinned upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to understand those three things. We're in need of saving. It's only Jesus who can save us, but he can save us. He's sufficient. And number three, he conquered death. Is that hope? Is that hope? Is that hope you can find anywhere else in this world? No, it's not. It's only in Jesus. That's why we talk about this time and time again is because it's always been through Jesus. It'll always be through Jesus. And if we believe all of that about Jesus, we need to focus upon the truth that if we go the way of Jesus, as we term following Christ, we will end up like Jesus. Where is Jesus today? He's in heaven. Where is Jesus today? He's highly exalted. Where is Jesus today? He's eternally rich. And if we go the way of Jesus, we will end up that way as well. That's hope. That is true hope. Don't you want a hope that changes your life? That changes your life? That you can sleep in your pillow at night in perfect peace and rest? That is true hope. That not only is Jesus highly exalted, but that he is eternal king of kings. And we follow him. And whatever happens to us in this life, no matter how dark, no matter how scary, no matter how bitter it seems, we're going to end up like Jesus. Highly exalted. So Jesus is our hope. Jesus is that hope. Everybody likes bacon, right? You ever met anybody that doesn't like bacon? I've never met anyone who doesn't like bacon. Don't raise your hand if you're that person, because I want that stat to stick. But I've never met anybody that doesn't want hope. I don't know a single person that says, don't need it. Don't need any hope. I'm good. Every single person needs hope. And Jesus is the true hope. Jesus is the hope everybody wants and everybody needs, but they don't know it. He's the way, the truth, and the life, and his exaltation from God proves that no matter how dark, no matter how scary and bitter this world can be, and it can be very dark, very bitter, very scary, we too will be exalted like our Lord Jesus forever. This isn't the end. There's not a period at the end of your life. Because Jesus rose from the dead, and he says, every single person who follows me will raise from the dead, will be exalted, will be in heaven for the rest of your life. The darkness we currently live in is not our real life, guys. It's not our real life. It doesn't characterize you. It doesn't characterize your life. The darkness and the bitterness and the loneliness or whatever hurt and pain you feel is not your real life if you're in Jesus Christ. It's a boot camp. It's a boot camp to prepare you for your true life. That's what we're in now. And so it's necessary, but it's not your true life. It's not your real life. We are waiting for that one real life to come. But we have to know this hope because life is hard. It is. It's hard. It's difficult. It's a struggle. And even Jesus himself struggled on the earth, didn't he? He struggled. If you read through the Gospels, it's a struggle. Jesus is going uphill. He's going against the grain. He doesn't have a lot of friends. Even his best friends abandon him at times. It's a struggle for Jesus. But Jesus is not struggling today. Jesus is not suffering ever again. Isn't that hope that you want? Isn't that hope that you want that one day 
The suffering will be gone. The struggle will be over. Nothing will be uphill ever again. It's because Jesus is your king, and he's highly exalted. But first, we have to go the way Jesus went. In order for that to be a reality of our lives in eternity, we have to go the way Jesus went now. See, you don't get to avoid the path now and then jump on at the last second. Go, here I am. You know, bring me in, Lord. I'm one of yours. No, you have to start following Jesus now. You've got to buy into the whole process. And how did Jesus go on this earth? Well, he went the path of obedience. He went the path of sacrifice. He went the path of suffering for the sake of God's glory. Yes, he's highly exalted now. He's king. Now he's comfortable and rich and blessed for all of eternity. But he went the way of God's glory. And that meant obedience, sacrifice, and suffering. Now, for a temporary time. So what do we want? What do we want? Do we want to avoid suffering and struggle for our time here on this earth? And at the end, God abandons us and says, no, you didn't follow my son, Jesus. Or do we want to say, yes, whatever comes to Jesus, I'm in. I'm in, because I know where he is. I know what he's done. I know that the struggle and the, and the suffering is over. And if we understand this hope, we will follow Jesus singularly. We will. He will be our one hope. He will be our one passion. He will be the one thing we must do every single day. I need to follow the one who gives me hope. So Paul prays that the people grasp this hope. If they grasp this hope, it will spur them on in the face of persecution even. It will spur them on in the face of suffering and struggle and everything that seems uphill when you don't think you can go any longer. You're weary and you're tired and you're lonely. If you know the hope that lays on the other side, you will say, I'm going further, more, better, faster. And that's what he's hoping for the Ephesians because he knows, just like Paul, there's going to come days for struggling for the Ephesians. And he wants them to have the hope at the forefront of their minds. So that's the first thing he prays for. The second thing he prays for is that they know the riches of his glorious inheritance. The riches of God's glorious inheritance. You know what the word inheritance is, right? Inheritances are riches that are passed on to someone else. Well, Paul wants them to know that their riches are God's riches. The world tells us that if we play our cards right, we can be rich on earth. Right? And that's the best thing they know. If we play our cards right, we can have money and wealth and comfort on earth. And that's the best we know. That's the best we got. But if you play your cards right, you can be that kind type of person. And if you look at the media, if you watch the world, the rich are the ones that seem to have all the power and the happiness, aren't they? They have everything together. The rich seem to get what they want. They seem to be going the right way because they're rich. They have status in the eyes of man. They have power in the eyes of man. They have comfort and ease in this world. And the rich seem to be getting everything they want. And consequently, if you listen to the same message, the poor are the ones without. The poor are the losers. The poor are the ones that are going the right, wrong way, the ones that have messed up their life, the ones that are destined to struggle and suffer. So the rich have it and the poor don't have it. But God's word speaks very differently. Did you know that? It speaks very differently because of this one fact. The Lord Jesus was poor. The Lord Jesus on earth was poor, poverty-stricken. Many people came up to Jesus and said, Jesus, I'm, I'm in. I want to follow you. And Jesus said, are you sure? Because I don't have a place to lay my head. I don't have a home. I'm homeless. I live on the mercy and kindness of other people. I don't have anything. 
If you follow me, that's your lot as well. Are you sure that's what you want? Jesus was poor. Is Jesus poor now? No, absolutely not. He has all the riches. All the inheritance came to Jesus Christ. But on the earth, the king of kings was poverty stricken. And it's the complete opposite of what the world tells you. The world says, get your riches, get your wealth, live in comfort, live in ease. And the word of God trains you differently, says, no, go the way Jesus went. Poverty is not the biggest thing. It's not the scariest thing. It's not the worst thing that can happen to you, to be poor, like Jesus was poor. That's not the worst thing. The worst thing is to be cast away from God. So don't you want to go the way Jesus went? Do you really need riches in a place that's going away when you have eternal inheritance from God coming to you? So Jesus suffered and struggled on earth. He did. It's true. He was lonely. He was rejected. He was mocked. But where was Jesus' focus? Heavenward. He didn't focus on the pain and the suffering and the hardship and the loss and the loneliness. If he did, he would have been depressed like the rest of us. But Jesus looked towards heaven and said, one day, one day, it's all going to be over. One day, I will be highly exalted. And he said this time and time again in scripture. In Matthew chapter 6, he said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Why? Because moth and rust destroy them and thieves break in and steal them. They're temporary. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves cannot break in and steal. In Colossians chapter 3, he said, Set your eyes on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your eyes on things above, not on things of the earth. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. In 1 John 2, he said, The world and its desires are passing away, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. So who are you listening to? Are you listening to the world that says, get your riches, get your wealth, get comfort, get ease, get power. It's all that matters. Make sure you have status. Or are you listening to Jesus that says, go the way of God and trust that one day he will give you everything you need. And Jesus had a perspective beyond the so-called riches of this earth. He knew that only God could make someone truly rich eternally rich. And by that, doing God's will and striving after God's glory, a person, including God, excuse me, including Jesus himself, would be rich forevermore. If we have eternal riches, why do we need lesser riches on the earth? Uh, the other day, we, um, we threw out one of those baby rocking chairs. You guys seen those? It's like a bouncing chair. And we threw it out in our garbage and someone grabbed it. You guys ever do that? You throw out some garbage and somebody comes by and snags that thing? Does it matter? Was I broken up by that? Did I come in the house and say, Janine, someone stole our garbage? I can't believe it. I want it back. I want it back. No, I didn't care. Because we had something better. We had a newer version. I didn't care. I didn't care about the old bouncy chair. We had sentimental memories from it. We have pictures and stuff like that with our other children. But I didn't care. We had something newer and better. Did I care that someone stole my garbage? No. Do I care if I have riches on the earth at all, if I have God's inheritance? No, I don't care. And neither should you. And Jesus, it says in Philippians chapter 2, that he gave up everything. He became a servant. He served his own creation. He became a slave, a servant. He had nothing on the earth, but he's highly exalted today. He is the, he is the name above every name. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And one day, everyone will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So riches are a good thing to strive after. They are a good thing to strive after, but not the petty, puny, 
temporal riches of this earth. That's fool's gold. We need God's riches because everything else, according to God's worth, is true poverty. If we have God's riches, we're rich. If we have the earth's riches and we don't have riches in God, then we are the true poor ones. We are poverty stricken for the rest of time. So Jesus went the way of God's will, and because he did so, he was given God's inheritance. And I want you to try to imagine what that inheritance is like. I want you to picture how much riches God must have. Do you think you can calculate that? Do you think you can pull out your calculator and come to the understanding of how rich God is? Would you rather be Bill Gates' children and get what Bill Gates gets, or God's children and get what God gets? Right? I mean, honestly, when you put it in those terms, it's, it's obvious. Can anyone have more than God? Can anyone be richer than God? No, obviously not. And the world's riches, we've been told, are going to pass away like the flower of the grass. That's what we learn in Peter, 1 Peter. But the riches of God are going to last for all eternity. And Paul wants the Ephesians to know these riches, to know the riches that await them. Why? So they don't have to chase the puny fool's gold version of riches. Chase the will and the glory of God because you're rich. You don't have to chase garbage. You're rich. And if God is the maker and owner of all things, I want us to imagine what God could bestow upon us if he desires to. And thankfully, because of Christ Jesus' worth and because of Christ Jesus' merits on the cross, Jesus secured every ounce of God's riches. And here's the cool thing for us. The church is the bride of Christ. Whatever comes to Jesus comes to his church. Whatever Jesus gets, we get also. Every ounce of God's riches. These riches, these riches from God, are what caused Moses to give up the so-called riches of Egypt. Because Moses was next in line, wasn't he? Next in line to be the king, to be the pharaoh of the land. And Moses said, so... Don't need it. I'd rather go the way of God. And he left everything in Egypt to suffer in the wilderness with really annoying people. <laughs> Why did he do it? What are you doing, Moses? Have you lost your mind? No, quite the contrary. I get it. I get it. I want to go the way of Jesus. It's what motivated the Apostle Paul to live years of his life in a dungeon for the sake of Christ and the message of the gospel. Because Paul was told... If you stop telling people about Jesus, we'll let you out. We will let you out. You don't have to suffer anymore in these dungeons. And Paul said, as long as I can serve my king, do whatever you have to do to me. As long as Jesus is happy. Because he knew that the riches of Christ would far surpass anything he missed out on. From the world. And so if the Ephesians and we would simply know the riches of Christ, and they and we would and could endure any amount of temporal, earthly hardship, loss, and suffering for the sake of God's glory. Because those who are rich in the love of God are the only true rich people in existence. Everything else is fool's gold. Another illustration. Growing up, I don't know if you guys did this, we had these birthday parties um, at this place called Top Dog. You guys remember Top Dog? We went there several times. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was at least 20 times we went to Top Dog. And Top Dog's kind of like that Chuck E. Cheese place, except it was mainly just an arcade. And we would go to Top Dog, and it was a blast. We'd have birthday parties there. And, 
And it's interesting, when you go and play their games, they have like their own currency, right? You start playing these games, you start rolling the skee ball down and it lands in the 20 and you know, a ticket pops out. A ticket pops out of the machine and the more you play, the more you win and the more you win, the bigger, more tickets you get. So Top Dog had like their own currency. And sometimes we'd go there, we'd be there several hours and how many tickets do you think we got? We got hundreds, hundreds of tickets. We're trying to shove them in our cargo shorts and things like that. And, and so by the end of our time at Top Dog, we had amassed quite a few Top Dog uh, tickets and we felt like kings. It's like, man, I have 600 Top Dog tickets. Imagine what I can get. So I take my Top Dog currency and I go up to their little booth and I'm like, the, the person in the old days had to count them one by one. One, two, three. And she finally comes and says, you have 613 Top Dog tickets. What would you like? And I'm like, well, I'll take one of those Nerf balls, a spider ring, because you always had to have a spider ring. And I walk out with four Jolly Ranchers as well and felt like a king. Felt like a king. 600 tickets turned into one Nerf ball, one spider ring, and four pieces of Jolly Rancher. Spent six hours making that money. But I, if you ever would have taken the top dog money, the top dog tickets, and tried to use them anywhere else, obviously, it's not going to work, is it? Or Chuck E. Cheese. Go to Chuck E. Cheese. Someone test it for me. Take 100 Chuck E. Cheese tickets and go to Target. And just say, I'm going to pay with my Chuck E. Cheese tickets. <laughs> and see what kind of look you get. And the point is this. Riches on earth do nothing, nothing for you in eternity. God considers it fool's gold. Doesn't matter. It won't get you in. It won't get you better things. There's no ticket booth that you can cash them in and find something better. They don't matter in eternity. <coughs> Earthly riches do not matter. Only the riches that come from God through Jesus. And Paul wants the Ephesians to know about those riches so they don't chase the earthly riches. Let's go to number three. The third thing he asks God that the Ephesians would know is the power that raised Jesus from the dead. He wanted them to know the power that raised Jesus from the dead. If you and I knew the hope of following Jesus, if we knew the riches of the inheritance that awaited us, we would do well, wouldn't we? We would be spurred on to a lot of things in the Christian life if we knew the hope and we knew the riches that awaited us. Because we would be, we'd be spurred on to something better beyond this world. But here's the other point. Our enemies in this life are real and vicious and eager to destroy us. Do we know that? Our enemies are spiritual forces of darkness and they hate us viciously, relentlessly. So you know what we need beyond just hope, beyond just riches? We need power. We need God's power because sin is like a vice grip on the soul. If you've ever been entangled by a sin that you can't get out of, you know what that feeling is like. It's like a vice grip on the soul. And once the devil ensnares you and entraps you and snags you, he doesn't let you go. He doesn't let you go. How are you going to get out? How are you going to defeat, to defeat the devil? You're not going to unless you have something stronger than him. And he asks God that the Ephesians would know the power that they have access to through Jesus. The same power that defeated death. And I want you to listen to the way he described this power. 
The way he describes his power is he says the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. The, the power Paul is praying for in the lives of those Ephesians and us is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. This is unbridled power. This power has no limits. Can we imagine a body that has been dead? The organs stop functioning. The blood stops flowing. The breath ceases to exist. The heartbeat, the heartbeat is null. And then it starts again. And life is brought back into that body. The blood continues to flow. The organs start to work again. The breath comes back into the lungs. The heartbeat starts once again. That's what happened to our Lord Jesus. He was dead three days. Three days. Nothing's working. He's dead. And three days later, he's alive. And Paul is praying that they know that power. Because that power can defeat anything. Anything. This power, if we are given this power, is unlike any other kind in existence. Probably the strongest power we can imagine on earth would be nuclear power. Right? That's what scares us all, is that some country would use one of those nukes against us, because that's unimaginable power. This power is well beyond that power. It can defeat every single sin and even death. That is real power. God's power given to mankind is the catalyst needed to conquer the forces of evil. Because the forces of evil are stronger than nuclear power too. So the power we have has to be stronger than the forces of darkness. And it is by a lot. And Paul is praying that the Ephesians know the power because once they know the power, they will stand up to evil. They will stand up to the devil. And I've told you this before, but I love the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the Old Testament. Because you read the story and these guys didn't like, they didn't flinch at the thought of a fiery furnace. How? I'm in a car accident yesterday and I'm all jittery for the rest of the day, you know. And these guys stand in the face of a fiery furnace that has been heated seven times hotter for their sake. And they don't bat an eye. How? Because they knew the power of the Almighty God. When Jesus died, three days later he rose and shook death off like it was crumbs on his shirt. The power that Jesus had is the power that Paul wants us to know that we too have. And we're not teased with this power. This power is not a tease. This is power we actually have possession of if we're in Christ. We have access to this kind of power. We can live in victory. And Paul, again, didn't pray that the Ephesians get the power. He prayed that they would know the power they already possess. Because if they know the power, what are they capable of? Isn't the answer everything and anything for God? And this power is not in our own strength. We have to mention that. It is not in our own strength. This power is gained by looking to Jesus and seeing the power that he has over sin and death. And if we live in the power of Jesus, the devil who is really powerful is rendered powerless. And his biggest weapon, his biggest, scariest weapon called death is taken from him. He's got nothing. His venom is gone. His, his bite is nullified. And Paul wants the Ephesians to desperately know this power firsthand 
It's not physical power like a bodybuilder, okay? This is power that is spiritual. And it's given to us to have confidence and victory over sin and evil. I work with a lot of young adults, and several of them have told me that growing up they were bullied. I don't know if you guys have ever faced that kind of treatment at school, been bullied. But people who have been bullied, you know what they want to do more than anything? They want to be strong. They want to be strong. Not necessarily to hurt people. They want to be strong so they have confidence. Well, we have a bully, and he bullies us a lot. He's big and bad and scary. And what Paul wants us to know that we have is we have the power of the Almighty God. Because if we know that power, we will stand up in the face of evil. We will walk in goodness and love and truth in the face of opposition. Because we can, and he can't stop us. So that's what Paul is praying for. Hope, riches, and power to be known and understood. What is the point of all this? What's the point? What's the point of this prayer request? Here it is, very simple. To live in hope. To live in hope. Not to know hope. To live in hope. To experience hope every single day of your life. Number two, to live in confidence. Are you confident in Christ? I hope you are. Number three, to live in victory over sin, over evil, to not let any sin bully you any longer. All for Christ's sake. All for the glory of God. And here's the point. Wyoming Valley Church, to get on board. Get on board. If you're not on board yet, get on board. While there's still time to do so, because one day there won't be time. And now there is time. Now there is a day of salvation. Now there is a chance to have hope, confidence, and victory in your life through Jesus. And what is the secret to this? As Paul prays, the secret is very simple. That we see clearly. That we see clearly the hope, the riches, and the power we can have in Jesus. To see Jesus and his worth and his value. Not like the world does. Not like the world sees Jesus or religion. Not like you can go to religious classes and pass a test and get some sort of certification. That's not what we're praying for. We're praying that we can spiritually see Jesus for his worth and his value. And for that to give us an eternal perspective of what real riches, what real power, and what real hope actually is. And we cannot have this unless the eyes of our hearts are enlightened. Unless God shows us the truth about Jesus. And once we see Jesus, it is clear, we will go the way of Jesus. It will be obvious. And if we're struggling going the way of Jesus, it's very simple. Why? We don't yet see clearly. Something is blocking our vision. Something is getting in the way of seeing what Jesus truly is. So we have to get on board with Jesus. We have to get on board with God's will, and we have to see Jesus for what he really is. And if we see his worth, if we see his beauty, if we see his value, we can know the hope, we can know the riches, we can know the power, and we can accomplish God's will on this earth, no matter what. God wants us to live an abundant life, an abundant life, one that centers around doing the will of God. Because is there ever a better purpose than living to serve the King of Kings? There's not. If you want a purpose, that's it. If you want something meaningful, that's it. If you want to use this life for something that matters, that's it. Serve the King of Kings.
He wants us joyful. He wants us confident. He wants us to know that we're on the winning team. And he wants us to see the worthiness of Jesus in all things. Because we don't have what we have without Jesus. We sang about it, right? Without Jesus, we have nothing. And with Jesus, we have all things. With Jesus, we are more than conquerors. Listen to Paul's final remarks concerning Jesus. Speaking of Jesus, he said, Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jesus has been given everything, all authority for all time. He is the head of the eternal glorious body, the church. Jesus and everyone that belongs to him will live and reign forever. And those who belong to Jesus now can be confident, confident that we can accomplish something otherwise impossible for us. With Jesus, we can do the will of God. And I hope that's encouraging to you today. Our application as we finish is this. Let us not be vague. We are here to do God's will. We need to discover who God is by searching into his word and learning about God. Learn about him. Go to the source. Don't let people tell you what God is like. Find out from him what God is like. Number two, learn his commandments. They're important. He tells you, this is what I want. This is what I want you to do. This is what I want you to live for. Learn them. Obey them. Make them your job title. Number three, learn how Jesus lived. Why would you chase riches on the earth if your Lord didn't? Number four, put a bullseye in the sins we need to conquer. Whatever those sins are, you have the power to defeat them if you're in Jesus. And number five, strive after love in all things. Have the eyes of your heart been enlightened to see Jesus clearly? Do you see him? Do you know his value? Do you know the hope, riches, and power that can come from Jesus? You need to. You need to. It'll change your life for the rest of time. Wyoming Valley Church, are you getting on board with Jesus and everything that he says is godly and eternal? Can you see clearly the beauty and the value of Jesus to your soul? Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for this passage in Ephesians. Thank you for what we've learned. But Father, we need to know well beyond just facts. We need to know experientially this hope, these riches, and the power that we have access to. And I pray that you would work in the lives and the hearts of those who are here, myself included, Father. Open my eyes further to see Jesus more so that we will follow him. It will be obvious, and every single one of us at Wyoming Valley Church will invest, will buy in, will get on board and say, Whatever Jesus desires is what I want to. Father, make this church whatever you want it to be for your own glory. And I thank you for the privilege of speaking your word today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.